Excellent. Good morning. Thank you all for having me here. You know, this is the most organized church in all the world. You know that, right? <laughs> JFED has this incredible, like, I don't know how we actually do church down at Crosswalk with, when I watch the organization that happens. And just so you know, JFED, when you guys took the lights down, my wife was looking on Facebook and she was like, oh no, they're taking those lights down because she's like an architectural person. So can I take one home? I think, I think it'll probably fit on the plane. Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, but thank you for having me. I'm just uh, so blessed always by worshiping with brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a blessing to worship with you here in Boulder. You're actually warmer here today than we are in Southern California, which is weird. Because I brought a jacket just excited I could actually wear it for once during the year. But um, you're not helping me out there. Um, my preaching style is a little bit different, so um, I hope you'll bear with me. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, and we're going to just do some real work. I feel like when you step into the pulpit, the job of a preacher is to um, open up Scripture and do the hard work that we have to do as Christians and learning about the Word of God. We have a tendency at times, unfortunately, to believe what we hear about the Word of God and forget to get back into the Word of God and let the Word of God be the thing that acts actually informs us. This is the first time this happened to me. I was, um, I shouldn't say the first time, but I was preaching one time at, um, I work at Azusa Pacific University. I'm, uh, I used to be a chaplain there and now I'm an adjunct professor. It's a Wesleyan University. And I was preaching, <clears throat> I can't remember exactly what text, but I took a very, um, wh what's the word I should use? I took a very Seventh-day Adventist understanding of the text and preached it. And this guy came up to me afterwards and he said, hey, where does, where does it say that? In Scripture, can you show me? Because I'd never heard that before. Very interested. And I was like, yeah, no problem. So I flip to the passage, and I go through, and I go, oh, it's not. It's not, it's not there. And he goes, well, where did you get that from? And I had to go back in my mind, and where did I learn this originally? When I was growing up, this was the narrative that I was given. That wasn't exactly biblical. It's certainly, you know, there's, there's some things that came from the prophetic word that we call the spirit of prophecy that we hear. But it wasn't actually in Scripture, and I was challenged on that. And so one of the things I like to do with my congregation, I hope we can do it together today, is look into Scripture as to what it really says so that we're not unclear about what God and the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us. So we're going to start at verse 26, and we're just going to work through Scripture, if that's okay. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down to the desert that, that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. And it's interesting because we hear the term, the angel and the Holy Spirit. We'll hear the word Holy Spirit in verses 29 and 39. So what we're having here is both an Old Testament nomenclature for God and a New Testament nomenclature for the Holy Spirit, both for the Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here, our narrator in this text is bringing together the tradition, which we will see later on in the story, as you know, but is also bringing in the new understanding of how God is working. This is a deeply Trinitarian understanding of how God works, which is really beautiful. Verse 27 continues. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Kandaka, or sometimes called the Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Now, the queen of Ethiopia was not necessarily named Candace, but it was the dynasty, the Candace dynasty. So it could have been many different queens, but he was serving one, 
also, the term eunuch doesn't necessarily mean a physical eunuch. It very well could have been the nomenclature for his position in, as the treasurer of Ethiopia at the time. As well, Ethiopia is not the Ethiopia that you think of right now. Probably Ethiopia was much closer to um, what we would call an area of Nubian, the Nubian area closer to Aswan and Egypt in that particular area. So we have to understand our context a little bit to understand what was going on. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, why in the world would a eunuch go to Jerusalem to worship? You know that if a eunuch goes to Jerusalem to worship, a eunuch's not going to be able to worship in Jerusalem because they're not going to let him in the temple because if he is physically deformed, he's not going to get a chance to step in and worship God. But this is someone who seemed to have some sort of commitment to Judaism, He was a proselyte, but he was not going to be allowed into the temple. And this this makes for an interesting piece as we continue on. Verse 28, and he was now returning, seated in his carriage. He was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, you have to remember, it wasn't easy to get a book back then. If you were going to buy a scroll, you had to have some means. First of all, you had to be educated because you wanted to read it. But second of all, you would have had to have some means. Now, this tells us some things about this particular Ethiopian. First of all, he was faithful. He seemed to be faithful because even though he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple, he still purchased for himself an Isaiah scroll, and he was studying it. Now, this is an important point because I think one of the things that we need to understand as Christians more than anything, and I say this and people get a little nervous, so don't be nervous. Let me finish my sentence. You need to stop reading Scripture and you need to begin to study Scripture. Too often we spend our days kind of, you know, letting those paragraphs kind of wash over us, thinking we've done our devotional work because we've read Scripture. But that doesn't mean we've, A, understood it, or B, brought it into our own being and our own hearts. And so I would suggest that we stop just reading Scripture and begin to study Scripture in a different way. That's why I love the daily walks that are happening. I love the way that... um, as we've worked out this year, we're, we're trying to push people more into an in-depth understanding and study of Scripture. But we should ask the question, what could have happened in Jerusalem that would have prepared the Ethiopian to, um, to receive this word that Philip was going to bring him through the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, he would have heard about Jesus, he would have heard about the disciples, and he would have heard about those following the way. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people that would have gone to Jerusalem. We're talking about thousands, certainly. But the biggest thing that had been happening in Jerusalem at that time in Judaism was this new branch, these followers of the way. So had he been spending any time in Jerusalem, he would have heard about what was going on, wouldn't necessarily have understood it because chances are the followers of the way were getting a pretty bad rap in Jerusalem at the time. Nobody was sure what to do with them. They seemed a little bit different. They had received this thing called the Holy Spirit that they weren't sure what was going on. They seemed to not care about the traditions nearly as much as the traditional Jews. So he probably would have heard about them a little bit, but not really sure what to do with them. He certainly would have heard about Stephen at this point, perhaps signs and wonders. Things were happening. But of course, when things happen in a church, it causes a problem. Have you ever noticed that? 
Have you ever noticed that when a church really begins to be filled with the Holy Spirit, when a church really begins to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ and people and the church begins to grow because you know that's what happens, right? When you, when you lift up Jesus, just like scripture says, he draws all men and women unto him. And when that happens, it's fascinating that other churches in the area are like, what are they doing? What are they doing wrong? It's fascinating that we sometimes think that when a church is growing, they must be doing something wrong. Isn't that a weird mindset for us to have? But we do have it. Sometimes I think it comes from jealousy. Sometimes I think it comes from an insecurity that we may not be doing much. I'll tell you one thing that we've learned over the last seven years is that as you lift up Jesus, people are drawn to him because Jesus is never irrelevant. Because Jesus represents love and love will never be irrelevant to the world. Our churches should be full of people because this is the place where they can be most well-loved. And it's as simple as that. I told my church the other week, I said, listen, um, why do you bring people to church? And that's a weird question for a pastor to ask because you could tell the congregation was like, aren't we, aren't we supposed to? What is, like, what? And I was like, yeah, why do you bring people to church? Because the answer to this is this must be the place where you find the most love because that's the place you need to bring them. Because if you want to love your neighbors, if you want to love the people in your life, and church is not the place where they were experienced the most love, don't bring them here. Bring them to your table at home if that's the place they'll experience the most love. Or bring them to wherever it is. Take them to that place for them to meet Jesus. And that gives us a huge responsibility as a church to learn how to love and to learn how to love well, which is really important, I think. But he, he must have heard about them. Also, he, was a, he had a strong commitment to Judaism. I mean, he traveled all the way from, from, from his area all the way to Jerusalem. And that means he had an expectation of the Messiah. You know that because the Jews expected the Messiah. Even the Samaritans expected a Messiah. Why did he have the Isaiah scroll? He had the Isaiah scroll and he had it open exactly to these messianic passages. You see, anytime a miracle happens, there's background work that has happened before the miracle happens. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever prayed for something and just prayed that God would work something out and then it works out? You know that God was preparing that, that miracle in your life well before you prayed it? That's the fascinating thing about God. Because he knows what you need before you need it, your prayers are almost superfluous because he's like, I got you. And he was already preparing the Ethiopian. He was already preparing the Ethiopian to receive the word of God through the Isaiah scroll and then through Philip. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. The Holy Spirit told Philip, and Philip, listen, present yourself as one who is ready to teach and one who is ready to share. And Philip did it. And I got to tell you, when Christians begin to listen to the, word of, to, to the Holy Spirit when he gives you a word, when you actually begin to do the things that your heart is telling you to do, even when those things sometimes seem a little crazy, I believe that the kingdom of God is advanced. And I think one of the problems we have is that we, we've stopped listening to the Holy Spirit because we don't think the Holy Spirit will be unreasonable. We think the Holy Spirit kind of works like we do, right? The Holy Spirit makes rational decisions, has rational choices. He's not going to do anything that's going to make you feel uncomfortable. But if you look at Scripture, is that true anywhere? <laughs> There's nowhere in Scripture where it says, what the Holy Spirit does is convict your heart to do very little. 
The Holy Spirit convicts people to move out beyond where they're comfortable. And so that's what we have to do as Christians as well. So Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked him, listen, do you understand what you're reading? This context is important because listening makes you a better evangelist. I teach a class of nursing students at Azusa Pacific University. I teach them faith integration, so how they in integrate their faith into their nursing practice. And one of the things we always tell them to do is walk into the room, and before you say a word, before you tell somebody, hey, can I pray with you, or anything, listen. Listen to them and look for their faith flags. Because if you walk into a hospital room and someone's got a Bible open, now you can have a different kind of conversation. Somebody has a Quran open, you know that that conversation is going to be different. Somebody has a cross around their neck. You've got all these faith flags. But if we're going to be evangelists, we have to listen to the context. And so what I love about this is Philip walked up and then heard him reading and said, hey, do you understand what this means? The man replied, how can I? Unless someone instructs me. And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. Man, the Ethiopian's heart was open to the gospel because he was somebody who had submitted himself to God. He was someone who had submitted himself. And when you submit yourself to God, you know right from the beginning that you have more to learn. That's kind of the beginning of Christianity, isn't it? We, we, we understand that we need Christ and we understand that we don't know it all. And it's fascinating to me that any Christian would ever be arrogant in, its, in their faith. Because as Christians, the first thing we know is we don't know it all. And that's so much why we need God. There's no place for arrogance in our understanding of who God is. There's only place for humble submission and sharing of what God has blessed us to know. So it continues in verse 32. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Now, this is the Holy Spirit. The fact that he was reading this text when Philip walked up, we like to call that the sacred echo. And as a pastor, this happens a lot. I'll have an idea of what I'm going to preach on. I know how I'm going to land. And I get to the place, and they say, hey, we're going to end with this song. Is that okay? And it happens to be the exact song that should end the sermon that I never would have thought of, but that's exactly what it should have been. Or I have four conversations about the sermon that I'm about to preach during the week, and it helps form what it is that I need to say because I understand what my community is asking about this particular text or this particular issue. The Holy Spirit is active and alive and working. And we have to be expectant of the Holy Spirit. And we have to listen when we get in those conversations that have a tendency to lift up God or glorify God. I've taken two Ubers in the last two days. And when you take Uber, you kinda, you're never sure what you're going to get. Usually it's pretty good. You see the picture, and you're like, oh, that person doesn't know how to take pictures with their phone. <laughs> At least that's what it looks like in that little circle. But I love taking Uber because somebody will show up, and you know, eventually they're like, what do you do? And now, when you say you're a pastor, that can go one of two ways. That can stop the conversation completely, and we are in Boulder, so I wasn't sure what people would think. Or it can lead to something really phenomenal. It usually leads to something phenomenal. And I've seen the sacred echo happening in just the two Uber drivers that I've taken over the last 24 hours. When you sit down and say, I'm a pastor, and the guy goes, hey, 
my dad's dying. That's the next words that came out of his mouth. How do I, I don't think he's a Christian. How, how, how do you think maybe I should say this? He's got cancer. Well, fascinatingly, my dad has cancer and we're dealing with some of the same issues. We talked for 30 minutes on the way. That's the sacred echo. We can say, oh, that was just a nice conversation that we had, but we're not those kind of people. We're not the kind of people who say, oh, that just happened. We're the kind of people that believe that God is actually involved in all of this. We're the kind of people that glorify God for a conversation in an Uber car. We're the kind of people who go, God, you set that up. How did you know I needed that guy and that guy needed me? It wasn't just happenstance. And so it wasn't happenstance that the Ethiopian was reading this particular text. And it continues on in verse 33. He was humiliated and received no justice who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth. And this always reminds us. And the reason why that Ethiopian didn't know what he was talking about is because Jesus was not the Messiah that they wanted, but he was the Messiah that they needed. See, the Jewish community didn't understand because they were expecting something else. Those who understood who Jesus were, who Jesus was, it took them a long time to really understand it. And I still think sometimes those disciples, even though they were walking with him every day, I think they had moments of, who is this guy? And then Jesus would remind them of who he was. It's not the Messiah that they wanted, but it was the Messiah that they needed. And this is why, this is why the Ethiopian wouldn't have understood who this person was. So in verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? He's doing exegesis. He's studying scripture. So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Man, this is, this is it. This is evangelism. This is when somebody opens their heart to hear the word of God. I was on a plane one time. I used to play in this band that will remain nameless because we weren't great. We had a lot of fun, but we weren't great. I'll just own that. <clears throat> we happened to be on a plane, and I sat next to this woman, and um, she was clearly visibly upset. And on a plane, I kind of like to not like engage if I don't have to. My whole life is engaging with lots of people. So when I get on a plane, I kind of like to put the headphones in and just kind of you know, focus on whatever. So I'm sitting down. This woman is bawling. And um, so I ignored her as long as I could because I'm a bad person. And apparently a horrible pastor. After a good 35 minutes, I recognized, okay, I got, I've, got, I've got to say something. <laughs> so I said, you know, the most idiotic thing you could think of, are you okay? No, clearly she's not okay. Clearly she's not okay. It's like, are you, are you okay? Said, no. And she began to explain to me that her, um, her brother had just overdosed on heroin. He'd been addicted to heroin for 20 years and he'd finally overdosed. And um, she was a Pentecostal woman, wonderful woman, um, and, and she was concerned about how he was burning in hell. That was, that was her concern. That's what she was crying over. And um, I, I said, well, you know, there's another perspective on that that maybe I could, I could give you. Now, one thing you need to know about me, I love scripture, but I have not a great memory. So I'm not one of those pastors who wins Bible trivia games you know, you all knew that kid. You know, the kid who won the Bible trivia games in high school was never the one who became a pastor. You know that, right? <laughs> like that kid went and did something else. I, I never could win those games. So I was like, you know, the Bible talks about sleep 42 different times. 
death being like sleep 42 different times. She's like, really? Where? And I'm like, <laughs> but, but this is where it got really cool, right? So the rest of the band was around me. Um, people like uh, Michael Connect, people like Roy Eyes, Pastor Roy Eyes, Pastor Sam Lenore, who'll be coming here in May, I guess. Um, they were all sitting around me. And so I said, well, and all of a sudden the Bible shows up on this side of me because I was sitting next to the aisle and with a finger like right, right here. So, so I go, well, I think this woman thought I had just somehow emanated a Bible out of nothing, which made it a way more important conversation for her because all of a sudden I've got a Bible. And I'm like, well, see right here, where else does it say? Well, let me tell you, pick up another Bible. And uh, like, I don't know if she was noticing, these were like four different colored Bibles. Like we were all engaged in this Bible study. It was hilarious. But you know, it was, it was such a serendipity that it all went down because A, she stopped crying, which was good. B, she began to be comforted and have a little bit of peace. I mean, horrible thing that her brother had gone through in a horrible life that he had, he had struggled with addiction for so long. But as we walked off the plane, she, uh, she said, so what, what church do you go to? I was like, oh, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And she goes, really? I'm like, yeah, have you heard of us? And she said what everybody says when you say Seventh-day Adventist and they're not familiar. She's like, Mormon. I'm like, no. <laughs> That's Latter-day Saints, Seventh-day Adventist. It sounds kind of the same. But no, and she's like, well, tell me about it. So we walk off the plane, I tell her about it. And she's like, I'm going to go look up my Seventh-day Adventist church in the town that I live in. I was like, great, that's great. Sometimes God sets up serendipities for us to be the kind of evangelists that we need to be. And what's fascinating about this is that the Holy Spirit knows you so well that he will have you witness in a way that only you can. Only you can. All you have to do is be receptive and ready to witness. And it doesn't, he's not going to ask you to witness about something you don't know. He's going to ask you to witness about exactly what you need to say in your experience with God. Verse 36, as they rowed along, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? How can I get, how can I become more committed to this new teaching, to this Jesus? That's a great thing, isn't it? Because when somebody wants to commit more, it's beautiful. As I teach... When someone says, when I give a five-page paper and they come to me and say, only five pages, can I do more? Like, that person's going to get an A. I don't even have to read it. <laughs> don't tell them I said that. But you know, like, they're asking the most. It's the people who ask the least that they can do that you have to be worried about. Those are the legalists, right? The legalists ask the least that they can do. And the legalists say, you know, hey, um, is the bibliography included in the five pages? is the cover page included in the five pages? And they're looking with this expectation. You know, they're the ones who get to that fifth page and have to decide how long they have to go down on that fifth page, right? Is it one sentence? That's not enough. Is it a paragraph? You gotta start a new paragraph on the new page for it to be considered a page. I mean, these are the conversations we have. Legalist conversations are ridiculous conversations. You know that. Because all you're doing is a, is a, a, a quick race to the bottom of the least that you can do. What if I ask my wife, hey honey, what's the least I can do to stay married to you? How's that gonna go? <laughs> now you guys don't know my wife, but I'll just let you know, that's not gonna go very well, right? And if you're not sure, try it at home. <laughs> Come back and report it, you'll be alone, <laughs> right? That's the problem. 
This guy is not asking what's the least he can do. This guy is asking what's the most I can do. Wait a second, how can I be more committed? What can I do? I love his passion. I love his passion. Man, and when somebody, when somebody receives the Holy Spirit, when somebody receives the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are excited about it, and they want to move forward in that relationship, I don't think we should put anything in their way. I think we should, I think we should move mountains to get them to make that decision and be with them. So he ordered the carriage to stop, it says in verse 38. And they went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. Which is great. What's the problem? Now, we're doing an interesting thing in our church, and you may agree with it, you may not. Um, we've, always had, um, we've always had a Sunday expression of Christianity renting our facility. I think you guys may have here as well. Well, this year we don't. Our, the group that was there ended up leaving. And um, so this year we don't. So we were kind of going around um, talking about our Easter services and what we should do. And so there's the question, you know, should we have an Easter service? We're a real outreach-oriented church. You know, we've, we've started a 6 p.m. service that is mainly attended by those who are not from the Adventist tradition, which is phenomenal. And um, so we thought, well, you know, the most of our community, because they're actually not Adventists that live in our one-mile radius, maybe we should do something on Sunday to, so they, that, that makes sense to them. It's in their vernacular, right? Um, and so we were talking to people, and they said, hey, what if we did some, what if you made a call for baptism, and we baptized right there. Now you've got to have the conversation, right? Because the Adventists, we baptize, but we do a lot of Bible studies before we baptize, and then we vote them in a membership at the same time. And there's a, mis there's a misunderstanding, by the way. There's often a misunderstanding that we baptize into the Adventist church. Theologically, we don't do that. We just vote them into membership at the same time. So it feels like we're baptizing them into the Adventist church, but we baptize people into Jesus Christ, and then we vote them into membership in the Adventist church, which is great, and people should understand their community. I got no problem with that. But, but we actually have the conversation on our board. Okay, if somebody wants to be baptized, do we do it? And then we read this scripture. Now, are we people of the book? Are we people who believe in scripture and believe that scripture is a model for the way that we live our lives and the way that we transfer the gospel? Because that's a challenge because traditionally it feels a little different. And I know that we're going to get pushback. I know there'll be people who are like, you can't do that. You need to make them understand. You know what we are going to do as we baptize them? Well, not as we baptize them. That would be weird to ask them a question as you're putting them in the water. So afterwards, we're going to say, would you like to be a member of our church? And we're going to start a class so that they can understand the community that they belong to. And when they accept that, if they want to accept that, we'll vote them into membership of our church. This has been done before in Adventism. We're not setting a precedent. But what do I do when our tradition doesn't seem exactly like what Scripture says? Who do I... Lean to. Now, we can have long discussions about it, and like I said, not everybody's going to necessarily agree with what we're doing. I understand that. But I'm hard-pressed when someone comes to me and says, I want to be baptized into Jesus Christ. I want to do that. Because in my heart, I want people to know Jesus more than anything else. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And that's literally the term, the, um, I can't remember the Greek word, but the Greek word actually means snatch. He just took him away, and the eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way. What's that last word? Rejoicing. Do you notice that when Philip evangelized the Samaritans, and there was a Samaritan revival, do you know what it said about the city? There was great joy in the city because they received the word of God. Friends, 
If there's no joy, it's not gospel. If we, are visiting, if we are visiting something on people that does not give their life more joy, that does not give them more freedom, then it's not the gospel. It's something else. Now, what's interesting is that there's a lot of extra biblical work that says this Ethiopian went back to Ethiopia, as it was in that time, and evangelized like crazy and, and changed the way those people believed because he had such great fervor and such great passion. And in fact, a phenomenal book on Christian history called The Lost History of Christianity by a guy named Philip Jenkins says, um, and I may have to turn around to read this because I put a little bit too much on it. If we can go to the next slide. For most of its history, Christianity was a tri-continental religion with powerful representation in Europe, Africa, and Asia. And this was true into the 14th century. Do you know in the 14th, by the 14th century, until the 14th century, the, the African and Asian church was just as big as the Western church? That's pretty late in the game. But it continues on. It says that Christianity became predominantly European, not because of this continent, not because this continent had any obvious affinity for the faith, but by default, Europe was the continent where it was not destroyed. And that book is fascinating to listen to because you see how missionaries who became evangelists, who became so excited about the gospel, took it all the way to China even. It's fascinating. Verse 40, meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. Do you know what happened after the Samaritan revival? Peter and John stopped at every town along the way to tell people about Jesus. Now, evangelism is a scary word, isn't it? When we talk about evangelism, we think about events, we think about long series. I just had a church from Texas call me up and say, hey, can you do 15 Daniel and Revelation um, seminars? Can you do 15 of them? And I was like, I pastor a church. Like, how, how can I do that? Well, just like take time off and come and spend six weeks with us. And I was like, it's weird. I can't do that. Thank you for asking. This is wonderful. But I know, no, I can't, I can't do that. Um, but they had received a lot of money from their union to be able to put on these 15 evangelistic series to bring people into the church. Now, let's not be afraid of that word. What I said to my church last year at the beginning of 2017 is, you all have one job this year, this whole year, one job. I want you one time to bring one person to church. That's it, all year, that's all you have to do. That's not true, we need lots of you to serve and that sort of thing. But <laughs> overarching, <laughs> overarching, your job, your evangelistic job over this next year is to bring one person to church. Let me tell you what happened with our church. We started, at that point, we had about seven or 800 people worshiping with us. Today, we have about 1,500 people worshiping with us. Not because these people were phenomenal orators, but because they decided that the orientation of their heart would be towards Jesus and to show people who Jesus is. Evangelism is not an event. Evangelism is an orientation of the heart by nature. It's not an event. It is a direction we are always heading towards. See, the problem is what we've done, and this is why I brought this up. What we've done, I've got lots of colors. I'm very excited about this. 
As an adjunct professor, I work at like three different universities. As an adjunct professor, if you don't bring your own markers, you will always get the green one no one can see. <laughs> always. And some of you know that, right? And you don't know anybody at the school, so you're walking around like, do you have a marker? And people are like, that poor guy, we should pay him more. Um, so we're going to, I'm going to go with black. Um, so here's the thing. What we've done is we've said, this is evangelism, right? Somebody's over here. Here's the line. I'm over here. What I need to do is I need to come over here, and then we'll do things like, we'll say friendship evangelism or event evangelism, this sort of thing, hopefully to move people all the way to here, and then get them to jump that line or go through that line, however you want to say it. And then once they're here, we're safe. We got it. Right? Because that's the way we look. There is them who don't believe, and there is us who do believe. And you become one of us by believing exactly the same way I do. But there's a problem with this model. The problem with this model is twofold. One, if they don't get there, we drop the relationship. The second problem with it is when they get there, we drop the relationship. Because we understand that the statistics from evangelism is not great. People don't stay in the church once we drop them off in the church, especially when it's an event evangelism with somebody who's not even from the area, and they've come and preached, and they've identified with this particular preacher, and then that preacher leaves, and they're stuck in some church where they don't know anybody. And yes, there's lots of models where they try and do things differently, and sometimes it works, but the recidivism rate where people stop coming to church is pretty overwhelming. And then what's great is when you're done with the event, you don't have to do evangelism anymore. Like, you're done. You did it. You got it for the next three years before the church gets funding again. You know that evangelism is free, right? Because it's your heart and your mouth. That's all it is. And that's free. See, I think we need to think about a different model. I think Jesus, I think Jesus is the gravitational pull of the universe. I think he is he is the thing that we all orbit around. And we all orbit in different orbits around this Jesus. And, and sometimes our orbits come alongside and sometimes they're almost diametrically opposed. What our job is as evangelists is find the places where our orbits intersect with someone else's orbit and it won't be forever probably because we're all on these different orbits around Jesus. But if we can spend time with somebody and maybe move their trajectory a little bit more towards Jesus so the next time they go around, they're a little bit closer, that's evangelism. Evangelism is not getting someone right here so they're safe. Evangelism is bringing them closer to the creator and center and gravitational pull of the universe. That means every time I start a new class with people who don't know Jesus, my job in the five or six weeks that I get to spend with them is to just bend their trajectory a little bit. And you know what's fascinating? What's fascinating is that their trajectory bends my trajectory. I move closer to Jesus as I try and help them move closer to Jesus. But the problem is we've had this binary model here, and this binary model has meant that we've created an us and them mentality. We think because they're not in church with us, they're not part of us, but that's not true. Because Jesus died for every single one of us. What I find out from the story is simply this. When Philip heard the Holy Spirit, he listened and he didn't quench the Spirit. When God is calling you to have a meaningful conversation with someone or to be available with someone, there's no program, there's no plan, there's no fill in the blank, 
All it is, is the opportunity to be involved in someone's life. And friends, I guess we could say, if you really want evangelism to be an event, I guess we have to say it this way. It is an everyday event. It is something that happens every word we speak, every moment we meet someone. And if you want to see this happen, let me just give you some, let me, let me lift up Jfit just a little bit here. Every time I go out to eat with Jfit, Jfit knows everyone in the restaurant by the time we leave. He's handed out his cards to everybody. He's gotten their cards. I'm like, is this a networking event or lunch, man? And he's like, yeah, it is. But you know what's fascinating? You see those people come here. They show up. They check it out. They know him. He walks into a restaurant and they go, Jfit. He's bending their trajectory. He's bending their trajectory just a little bit. And that's what we're called to. Every single time we listen to the Holy Spirit and we engage in that conversation, it changes everything. Now in this, in this whole thing, in this preaching plan, we put together this with the triumphal entry. And I gotta tell you, I made the preaching plan a little while ago and I was trying to remember why I put the triumphal entry with this text. What does that have to, what does that have to do with anything? And then it dawned on me. When Jesus Christ comes into a life, it is a triumphal entry. And when we go to heaven, it is a triumphal entry because it's not based on what we've done or how good we are. It's based on who Jesus Christ is. We will go through heaven through the front door. We won't slide in the back. When Christ comes into your heart, the avenues are cleared, the palm fronds are lifted, and he walks in to inhabit that place. But you know what? And John Stott says this. He says, there is no evangelism without an evangel. There's no evangelism if there's no one speaking the word of God into other people's lives. And it's always local, by the way. It's always what you say over lunch. It's what you say as you're standing in a grocery store next to somebody. It's these little tiny events that the Holy Spirit has prepared for you, by the way, that you've listened to, that has moved people to a greater trajectory towards Jesus. And that is triumphant. Because when someone accepts the grace and love of Jesus Christ, not only is their life changed, but their trajectory and death is changed as well. It's a forever trajectory. And that's the greatest gift that we can ever give anyone. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, before we sing these final songs, Lord, I just ask that you would awaken our hearts, that you would walk into our hearts with triumph. And Lord, I would ask that, that you attune our ears to listen to the movement of the Holy Spirit, how the way has been prepared for us to be that evangel, to be the one who shares the gospel with someone in the smallest ways, in the smallest words, but with infinite results. Lord, may we always understand that evangelism will always be the orientation that you set us on, the trajectory that you set our orbit. And Lord, may we, may we be open to where you would have us go. In your name I pray, amen.